Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am joined on the mic, as always, by my co-host and co-producer, Calvin Pollock. How you doing, Calvin? Doing good, Alex. How about you, man? How are you? I'm doing swell. It's, you know, fourth week of the semester for me. I'm just kind of, oh, wow. you know, getting into the swing of things. It's, you know, that's how it that's how it goes. This is the point in the semester when you just start to really feel it. You're in it. You're in the soup. You're in the soup. <laughs> I'm in the, I'm in the, yeah, yeah, exactly. We're stirring the pot. We get the soup is at a is at a is at a simmer. It's at a boil almost. The weather's a little cooler. It's soup weather. Exactly. So Honestly, um, oh man, you're making me hungry. We're recording this episode <laughs> right around dinner time too, so it doesn't help that we're just oh man, I'm just craving comfort food now. But we do have something uh we are going to be roasting something this evening. Uh speaking of uh food metaphors. Uh because we we're back for another installment of our Rejoinder series in which we take arguments that are themselves a little charred, a little overcooked, and we decide to roast them a little further. We uh, take take them down from our standpoint as rhetorical critics uh, and just examine the kind of language and spurious assumptions that they are making uh, in forwarding their arguments on uh, everything from language, politics, academia, things that are generally in our wheelhouse. Uh, and as I understand it, Calvin, you have brought us in uh, a fairly unique artifact for our Rejoinder series today. Isn't that right? That's right, Alex. Uh, this is going to be fun because today, uh, for the first time ever, we will be rejoining a podcast. That's right, folks. You, you come to Reverb for for meta postmodernist self-referential content do you not well what what is more meta than a podcast about another podcast <laughs> podcastception we're just going to be we're going to be like five podcasts deep by the end of this episode and it's you're truly, not going to you're not going to know which one you started with it's truly a russian doll of podcasts and, and i do i do put emphasis on russian there, oh, uh, which will, which will make sense which will make sense in a second but okay so it's not okay. just any podcast there is actually quite a publicly significant podcast that just came out and for those uh, listeners who follow our social media as well as our podcast feed you might have seen that we actually did a thread about this one and that is the cia the central intelligence agency of the united states has uh developed their own podcast and they've released the first episode yeah the cia has dropped a podcast yeah no this is quite a big deal uh because you know it's just such a bizarre choice for an agency like the cia to uh get into the podcasting game i mean uh we already had pod save america and, Ch <laughs> and chapo trap house i don't know why we needed another CIA podcast. <laughs> we we need another. Uh, is is this also going to be a pseudo left wing podcast that purports to have progressive ideals, but is really is really just trying to uh, to black pill the youth uh, into yeah, really into complacency? Trying to, just trying to wreck social movements and and create chaos. Um, right, right. Uh, I think you'll find that it's a lot more boring than that. Ah. Um, but but I'm excited to share it with you. Um, and, and maybe we should take a second before we actually listen to some clips and react um, just to talk a, for a second about uh, what the CIA does. Um, mm. So, Alex, give me your kind of first reaction when you think about the CIA. Do you think of the CIA as 
uh, a positive organization? Do you think of them as woke in the way that um, conservatives now talk about the CIA? Uh, no, no. I mean, despite their their recent advertisements, which I believe we played clips on uh, of on a previous show. I'm a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I am intersectional. They've been trying to make these sort of attempts more lately to uh, to sort of posture as a progressive or quote unquote woke organization. The CIA, as I understand it, I mean, the first thing I associate it with is secrecy and sort of covert operations, uh, usually conducted at the behest of some uh, branch of the U.S. state, usually involving international affairs, right? Uh, so everything from coups that they have staged in Central and South America, all the way to cooperations with uh, right-wing governments and anti-communist movements in Europe and Asia. Um, so, I mean, there's there's various kind of malign things that I that I typically associate with them. I do not consider them to be a beneficent force in the world. Right, and and I think that the primary thing that the CIA does, um, which we should be very clear about, is surveillance. Right. Right. So the CIA is an intelligence organization. Intelligence fundamentally is information is non-public information that is possessed by the U.S. government um, and used to motivate various kinds of policies, mostly military policies. Right. Um, but uh, uh, surveillance, you know, often gets associated more with the NSA and the FBI. The CIA maintains an international network of informants and spies who tend to do more of the human intelligence, the kind of old-fashioned style of spying where you have uh, people embedded within the Chinese government or the Russian government who are, in fact, uh, CIA agents um, passing information back to the U.S. government. Uh, but, of course, increasingly they're developing... Um, offensive cyber weapons. They do a lot of that kind of stuff. They helped Israel uh, create a cyber weapon that took down Iran's nuclear program, for example, a, a tool called Stuxnet. A bunch of their hacking tools were actually leaked by WikiLeaks a few years back, right. uh, which was actually the thing that, that put WikiLeaks in, in the most legal jeopardy. Right. Um, but so they, they engage in bunch of operations primarily offensive in nature to get information about states that the u.s deems to be enemies right yeah and and i and i do think that that is kind of interesting that they've moved from that sort of you know human intelligence or is, is their new speak term for it is human int right human int right yeah human to this more you know sort of cyber warfare uh uh almost like i mean are they are they not also involved in propaganda operations that's true, overseas yes. as well yeah right so they work with uh there's a there's an official u.s propaganda outlet called voice of america right uh they work on that um and there's evidence from leaked documents that they do other kinds of offensive propaganda um although <clears throat> like according to u.s law they are legally not allowed uh to do that kind of operation within the US, but of course they maintain connections with journalists and often when they're anonymous officials um, serving as 
the primary evidence for national security stories in the U.S. media. Those are CIA uh, CIA backed stories, if not if not directly planted by the CIA. So if, uh, for those of you that don't know what this means, if you've ever read a piece of reporting on foreign affairs or, or national security and you see somebody quoted that says, you know, this is an anonymous official who spoke uh, who spoke on condition of an, on, on the conditions of anonymity. Yeah. That's usually not always, but kind of a giveaway term that you're talking about somebody who's working in covert operations or intelligence or yeah, like or, or perhaps a high ranking <laughs> Uh, White House official, right? Who, I mean, the White House is one of the primary customers of the CIA. Right. So much of what the white the, the official White House line on various issues, in fact, comes from the CIA. Yeah, I was I was also going to ask. You said Calvin that that the White House is one of the primary customers of the CIA. Mm-hmm. Could you explain a little bit? Is that just a metaphor, or is that a literal customer client sort of relationship? So it is it is used somewhat metaphorically. I mean, in the sense that like there's no money being exchanged, but uh, that's actually the language that intelligence agencies use. Ah. They talk about customer uh, organizations or um, agencies. That means that, for example, the CIA or the or the NSA might receive a request for intelligence um, from the White House or from the right. military, from a particular branch of the military, from a U.S. ally, uh, and then the intelligence agency responds and delivers an intelligence report. I see. But so let's let's take a listen to this podcast, and um, so the the very first clip that I have to share with you. Um, is basically the intro to the show. Okay. And I think that this really sets the tone for how bizarre this is. Decades ago, a quote was carved into a marble wall at headquarters. And ye shall know the truth, it reads. And the truth shall make you free. Oh yeah, if you need me to pause at any point, just just let me know. <laughs> we'll do, we'll do. At this point, I'm just laughing at the- the truth will set you free. This oh, is yeah. just making every anyone who's ever you know donned the proverbial tinfoil hat, their head is just exploding right now. I just have to within say that within fifteen seconds. Yes, within yeah, fifteen it, seconds. Yeah, they they yeah, boy. Whew. All right, let's keep going. At CIA, there are truths we can share and stories we can tell. Stories of duty and dedication. Stories of ingenuity and mission. Stories beyond those of Hollywood scripts and shadowed whispers. Today, we're taking a step out from behind those shadows, sharing what we can, and offering a glimpse into the world of the Central Intelligence Agency. This is The Langley Files. Wow. What an opening. I mean, I got to give credit where it's like production value credit where it's due. Like they they were clearly putting some money into this. Well, and they clearly listened to a lot of podcasts when <laughs> they were just figuring about... out this genre. I mean, it sounds like cereal or something. It totally that's boom, exactly boom, what boom. it reminded me of. Yes, yeah, the 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 plucked strings. They they knew yes. to go for the pl- the plucked strings is the genre feature that you have to nail if you're doing a which is like which is so funny that it invokes a, a sort of it invokes true, true crime, true crime podcast. 
it's like there it's like let let us let us divulge the, our our true crimes that we have committed to you the american public <laughs> there are finally some true crime tales about uh the uh we're, this is no longer a true crime podcast this is a war crime podcast now absolutely all right so let's oh hear let's hear the intro of our first host d let's do it welcome to everyone out there who is intrigued enough to press play and listen in on this very first episode of The Langley Files, a CIA podcast. My name is Dee, and I'm joined by my partner, Walter, and together we're really excited to have you come along. I just said, I, I love that they're saying a CIA podcast. Like, we're, we're going to get more. We're going to get a whole, this is the crooked media of, of intelligence. Say. Yeah, it's like, and you're a wolf podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Brought to you by PRX. <laughs> As we explore different topics related to CIA and chat with a wide variety of interesting and entertaining guests, we'll be your guides around the corridors here at Langley, separating fact from fiction, and learning what it takes to work at the world's premier foreign intelligence agency. Yeah, so that's D. That's one of okay. our hosts. All right. That's interesting in that, uh, you know, this is... It, it almost feels at, to, at this point like this podcast, if I'm trying to suss out like what is the social action that this genre is trying to accomplish, this is this seems like a recruiting tool, does it not? Yes. No, I okay. think you're right. I think you're yeah. right. Because, I mean, if we think about this in the context of that that classic, notorious CIA advertisement, which we'll probably have to pipe in the audio of that again, uh, that was essentially a call for potential interested job seekers basically to come and work for the CIA and that that line at the very end of this last clip that says we're going to tell you about what it's like to work for the you know the world's most premier intelligence agency makes me think that this is like this is like a job ad basically yeah no I I, I think you're right I think that's a key part of what they're doing here and I think it's worth uh, thinking through um, why they might be appealing to the kinds of people who like podcasts, uh, yeah. and and so we we should think about what this genre, um, how this genre functions as social action for the CIA. Absolutely. Uh, so let's take a listen to the the second host, Walter, his introduction. Okay. Hey everyone, as Dee mentioned, I'm Walter, and if you're tuning in, the odds are you've heard a fair bit about the CIA. Some of what you've heard is true, some of it is not. A lot, after all, has been broadcast about the Central Intelligence Agency, but no one classified podcast has ever been produced by the Central Intelligence Agency. Until now. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean that there has been a classified podcast? We need a new Edward Snowden, for God's seriously, sakes. Seriously. I need to hear that classified pod. Oh, my just, God. Yeah. Are they just doing, like, you know the most rancid, offensive, problematic riffs <laughs> on that classified one. Yeah, that's where they make all their problematic jokes that, you know, that, that would get them canceled otherwise, you know, the, Just the slur CIA. After slur. Yeah. yeah, God yes. only knows. Exactly. Um, so that's Walter. Okay. So Got what it. do you think of our two hosts? <laughs> Just based on these clips, their kind of, their vocal performativity, um, how are they coming across to you? Uh, very cold i mean this is clearly something that's read off of a script this seems like 
somebody who maybe either lost a bet or got or like botched their last operation and so this is like this they're being they're being put on desk duty like this is what it, this is desk duty for the cia is what it feels like i don't I know like is that, that is that how it came to you as well I- I think so, but I also think these are two people who do really like podcasts. And oh, they're doing, sure. They're doing their best, like, podcast voice yeah. uh, impression. And so I think you'll be able to tell that a little bit more as we listen to to more. So this next uh, clip I have is their explanation of why a podcast. Okay. And we know many of you might be wondering, why is CIA unveiling a podcast? Isn't the whole point to be secret? Didn't you guys invent, neither confirm nor deny? And I can confirm that, yes, we did invent that saying. Pretty good joke, oh my there, right? God. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, my God. Okay. I mean, so it is it is interesting that they're opening this up with a lot of meta discourse about you, the listener, probably came here to, you know, shit on us, basically. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. there's, there's a kind of open acknowledgement that, like, if you are coming to this podcast, which, again, you know, that might be kind of a savvy thing. Like, you know, we, we maybe, maybe we've been opt, Calvin, you know, like we, they know that we are the kind of audience that is going to be coming to listen to this. And oh, so yeah. they're trying to preface it with, you know, th- you've been told a lot of things about the CIA. Some of them are true. Some of them are not. Can, oh, did you know we invented the phrase can neither confirm nor deny? Like, oh, you've heard that in movies, right? It's it's supposed to be this kind of like I it, it is interesting that they that they seem to be trying to make this feel more banal, right? Like banal. I, yeah. I, I think they're trying to humanize themselves. I mean, this has been a broader effort on the part of intelligence agencies over the last like seven to 10 years is doing more public events, um, more public media. And I think that it's an effort to basically counter bad, bad press, bad media, uh, and just say, we're just regular folks. Um, and I think that when we get into the next clip, which is where, so most of this episode they're interviewing the current CIA director, William Burns. Right. Um, and Burns talks in the next clip. Uh, he basically gives his general stance on who the CIA is and why it actually does make sense for them to be doing a podcast, for Walter and Dee to be doing this podcast. So Got it. Uh, let's take a listen and, and see if it helps us understand what they're going for here. Sure. Well, it's great to be with you guys. And you're right. Intelligence agencies are supposed to collect secrets and keep them and not talk too much about them. We do usually operate in the shadows, out of sight and out of mind. Our successes are often obscured. Our failures are often painfully visible. And our sacrifices are often unknown. But a certain amount of discretion um, certainly comes with the territory. Um, We have a profound obligation to protect agents and officers who risk their lives in support of our mission, which is to help protect Americans. Um, But I'm convinced, as I know you are, that in our democracy, where trust in institutions is in such short supply, that it's important to try to explain ourselves as best we can and to demystify a little bit of what we do. So that's why I'm glad you're launching this podcast and glad to be with you. 
And that's a, that's a great word to use, the demystify word. And what we are trying to do is just that, is we think that by engaging a little bit more with the public, we can kind of help to lessen some of those misconceptions that many do have of us. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, there's so much. There's God. so much there. Oh, there's where do, so much. Where do there. you begin? So, so what I would be, I, I would use a different word uh, rather than demystify, and it's a word that if you if you've studied or talked to anyone who knows anything about the CIA before, you would know this term uh, to be called limited hangout. That a limited hangout is essentially this notion of like let's just put a little bit out there in the open to give the give the veneer of transparency when you know really what is like oh here's this distraction over here while we're doing something way way worse over here on this other side right um it's it's a it, it i mean to be quite frank it's like an authoritarian tactic it's a way of saying look at how transparent and democratic we're being we are committed to reestablishing trust in our institutions and really this is just like sort of the the most milk toast thing that you could possibly put out there right that this is you know, a sort of like, we're going to, we're going to put a little bit out there for you, but you know, obviously we need to keep the rest of it protected, you know, to keep our, to keep our, uh, hardworking men and women safe, uh, protecting America. That's also, I mean, that's a tired trope at this point. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it, I think that's, that's harder and harder for most Americans to feel, uh, that this agency actually protects us as individuals. It feels right. like such an outdated concept, but I, I was also really struck by, Two other things. The first being this acknowledgement that trust in institutions is is waning, and that and that that's such a massive concern. And yeah. it, I'm I'm always like, oh my god, he admitted, you know. Oh uh, my god, he admitted. <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> like you did that, you know. Uh, like yeah. your policies and 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 your mistakes. I mean, let's not forget. The CIA played a massive role in the intelligence that led to the Iraq War. Um, yes, they, they, you know there has been some his, you know historical work on that uh, that has made the case that it was a kind of rogue intelligence unit within the CIA that was stove what's called stovepiping intelligence, uh, which is right. which is when. You know, it's kind of an it's like what you're talking about with a limited hangout, but it's it's an intentional omission of facts that the agency has about a situation to support a particular um, policy agenda. Stovepiping is, right. is like cutting out all the stuff that disconfirms the hypothesis you want to run with. In this case, I in this see. case, the hypothesis that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that Saddam Hussein had con clear connections to al-Qaeda, all of these things that were used by the Bush administration to justify the war in Iraq. Um, but for that kind of information to make it to the president, to actually underwrite policy, it has to have a lot of institutional support uh, within the agency. So I kind of refuse to to go fully in on the stovepiping theory. Like I think that um, the CIA has acknowledged mistakes they made in that situation, but they haven't fully reckoned with how much that reflected like an agency wide belief in the necessity of the war uh, and then seeking out any evidence to back that up. Um, yeah. And 
you know, that's to say nothing about torture, you know, which the CIA has acknowledged now, um, which the Obama administration acknowledged, um, which even, you know, the former CIA director, Gina Haspel, acknowledged. uh, Yes. Right. Unapologetically so. Unapologetically. Um, she was involved in the torture program and and yes. uh, and nevertheless, you know, Democrats voted for her uh, when Trump appointed her as CIA director. But the bottom line yes. is that, like the CIA, even just since 9-11, has done plenty of publicly known things that have contributed to our widespread disgust and distrust um, towards institutions. Right. So to talk about yeah. that as if it's just an objective fact they have to deal with and respond to, I think is, is bizarre. I, I, I do wonder if they're going to address that at all. Like, Oh yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, I, I doubt it, but you know, let's, let's address the things that we did potentially that contributed to this destabilization. Yeah. Let's, let's see if they do that. Um, okay. so my next clip is Bill Burns, uh, making a little joke. So this one's fun. Uh, but one big misconception that a lot of those really entertaining movies feed is that intelligence in real life is just a glamorous world of solo operators, the world of James Bond and Jason Bourne and Jack Ryan, a world of heroic individuals who drive fast cars and defuse bombs and solve world crises all on their own every day. Um, that, I have to tell you, is a constant source of amusement for my wife and daughters. They never cease to remind me that I don't exactly fit that image, um, since I'm most comfortable driving our 2013 Subaru Outback at posted speed limits, and that, for me at least, the height of technological daring is when I can finally get the Roku remote to work at home. Oh, oh just pain. Pain. <laughs> Subaru Outback, baby. You know he's whipping not, that thing. Not, you know he's whipping that thing. He's not going to speed limit. If you're the CIA yeah, director, you no, need to drive the speed limit. Come on. Absolutely not. Every road for you is the Autobahn if you are the CIA director. And not just because you were involved in the recuperation of Nazi war criminals. <laughs> Boom! Nailed it. Sorry. Nailed it. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, no, that's uh, uh, a not two things that I would never admit publicly. Uh, that I drive a, uh, you know, for example, a 2007 Toyota RAV4. Uh <laughs> That's my whip. Uh, or I don't know. I also love that the examples that he gives of the sort of like Hollywood uh, secret agents, whereas like, you know, when I think of the CIA, you know, like I'm thinking of I'm thinking of rather different films that involve things like, you know, like counterintelligence operations gone completely awry. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, they're, that's the thing. Like James Bond is not the CIA. Jason Bourne is not the CIA. Like these are these are not really i mean sorry jason bourne wasn't cia i i honestly can't remember i saw like two of those movies and the the plot always baffled me i was only there for the moby soundtrack i wanted to hear his version of extreme ways that played at the end of every movie that's that's all i was really there also cia also (laughs) moby moby uh moby was in charge of the uh the vegan counterintelligence operations uh, to get everybody pissed off at yeah the 90s hipster uh cointel yes um yes but uh yeah no i i don't know why uh he 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 thinks that that's what people associate the cia with i think people just think of like 
Jason Bourne, Jack Ryan, etc. We think of those as just kind of like generic movie spy. I don't think people think yeah. that's who the CIA is. Um, right. Right. I think people think much darker stuff like JFK Absolutely. assassination. Uh, yes. Yeah. Coups, like all of these. Yes. These <laughs> things that people uh, have questions uh, or or have knowledge uh, that the CIA might have been involved in. Um but yeah, so I, 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 you know, this is another kind of pitch to humanization to like, see, I struggle with the Roku remote too. I'm just like you. <laughs> um, uh, but, but he goes on, Burns goes on to describe what the CIA does in general. So let's, let's see if we agree with this description. Every day, our officers are doing hard jobs and hard places around the world. Every day we're recruiting agents and collecting information on the plans and the intentions and the capabilities of our adversaries. Every day, our scientists and technologists and digital specialists are developing new tools to help us compete with those adversaries. And every day, our analysts are sifting through all that information and studying the global landscape to try to produce the best insights that we can to help the president make the best policy choices that he can. So immediate thing that jumps out to me there is that, you know, you're framing the CIA's work in an idiom of competition, which I thought was fascinating, right? That this is not something that is, as you said before, Calvin, I think rather astutely, a lot of the intelligence uh, and covert operations that the CIA heads up are primarily offensive, right? Like they are, you know, undermining democratically elected governments and things like that. They are, whereas the way that the the way that uh, Bill Burns here is trying to frame it is we're just trying to keep up, right? right? Like we are just trying to match the the shape of the threats that are out there that that pose a threat to the safety of the American people. Which, again, I think that if you really like that's that's rather crass in the, in terms of the history of what the CIA has done. This is more like you know the the scale of the the scale of the offensive that the CIA is putting up against the sort of like, you know, quote unquote insurgencies that they are putting down is not anywhere in the realm of competition, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is, to me, it does not feel like that is really the proper idiom to frame this in at all. I also love that just the, just the invocation of the, the phrase hard places. I know. We're doing hard work in hard places. Like we, we tried looking at, we tried doing our jobs uh, in these rocks uh, and we found that that wasn't working. So we had to go to hard places or, or even, or even, you know, Easy, easy places. Like, what's an easy place? America? (laughs) Is America an easy place right now? I don't think so. It's not not easy if you want (laughs) to not catch a debilitating disease. Um, Seriously. Like, this is just, uh, that that metaphor did strike me as really capturing the kind of nationalistic worldview of of these agencies so well. But but as you're saying, this is, uh, everything is framed in terms of an organic, objective competition in the world. I mean, this is fundamentally like a Hobbesian state of nature, uh, the right. international anarchy, like all of these kinds of <laughs> ideas um, that the CIA just takes for granted and then regurgitates. Uh, but I have a couple of clips of uh, basically the CIA's official narrative of two of its recent quote-unquote successes. And the first, okay. the first is the CIA's success in the lead-up to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. 
So let's oh, let's right. listen to this. Whew. Well, that doesn't always involve fast cars and solo heroics. There's no shortage of courage and skill and ingenuity among our officers. And I just cite two recent examples. The first is Russia's war in Ukraine. We're working with our partners across the U.S. intelligence community. We were able to paint a pretty clear picture of Putin's plans to mount a major new invasion of Ukraine last fall, months before he actually launched that invasion on the 24th of February. And that enabled us to help Ukrainians defend themselves. It helped us to build allied unity. Um, it helped to expose the fact that what Putin was about was a naked, unprovoked aggression. And we reinforced that by, you know, the president's decision to declassify some of our secrets as well. So what do you think of that? Uh, great success in Ukraine. <laughs> I. It seems like one of those things where, like, did 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 we need that, right? Like, did we need the CIA to tell us that this was an unprovoked, you know, like, like act of aggression? I don't, I don't think that there was, I gotta be honest. I don't really see what the, I don't see what the value add here was. I gotta be honest. It feels very virtue signally to me. Like we, we exposed Putin. We called Putin out. What did that do for Ukrainians? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. People's people are getting bombed the hell out. Like it didn't every stop the war. Still, it didn't stop no. the war. And, and you know, uh, I mean, I think there's so much about the Ukraine situation that we don't know um, that that's going to take probably decades to fully understand. And so, you yes. know, we haven't talked about it much on this show because we're not experts in the region. We don't want to claim mm-hmm. that kind of expertise. But I just right. think. This narrative of what the CIA did and claiming this as a major success story is very bizarre to me um, yeah. because they didn't prevent it. Um, the you know the war destroyed the country. We'll see how it ends up, uh, and it it does seem like it's damaged Putin a lot. Um, but again, what like how is that a success for? Ukrainians or Americans. Um, I, I, I think it has to be clarified much more than that description does. That description, again, makes it sound like, yay, we proved that Putin is bad. Okay, amazing. And also, it would have been worse if we hadn't been there to do something, right? right. Like, like you to know, we're imagining, like, yeah, like what, what, what could be worse than the sort of like bloody grinding daily stalemate that the war seems to be, at least at the time of this recording, you know, in, in late 2022. Um, I so, yeah, sorry. Like that's kind of a hollow claim to success. Like it's, it's hard to see a point where like this could be worse, right? right. <laughs> There's no clear, no clear end in sight here. So let's take a listen to Burns' second uh, success story. And at least in this case, you'll see it involved us killing someone like direct, oh, directly. Right. So let's see if we think great. that it was a great success. Okay. And then the second example is in the successful strike against Ayman al-Zawahiri, the co-founder, along with Osama bin Laden of al-Qaeda, responsible along with bin Laden for the deaths of thousands of innocent people on 9-11 and other horrific al-Qaeda terrorist attacks over the years. Um, That was a product, that successful strike was a product of many months of painstaking work to track and locate Zawahiri 
And then a month ago, it enabled the United States to conduct a successful strike against him in the middle of downtown Kabul without causing any other casualties. Uh, and I'd add only that I was in New York City a few days ago, and, and I had a chance to make a quiet visit to the 9-11 memorial at Ground Zero, which is always a powerful experience, as many of your listeners know. But it was especially powerful this time because it gave me a chance to reflect a little bit on on how that successful strike by the United States um, brought at least a measure of justice for the victims and their families. Oh, boy. I mean, where to begin with this one, too? I mean, if I'm thinking just about the overall casualty rate of the U.S.'s targeted assassination program generally over, you know, especially in the Middle East, I mean, you know... (laughs) There are like how many how many cases of a, you know, a bombed funeral or wedding do you have that eventually led up to like, okay yeah, 20 years later, we finally like got an actual target of this, you know, this this entire time that we have been classifying any military aged male uh, person who our uh, cameras can pick up as a potential enemy combatant who, you know, counts as a, uh, who counts as an enemy casualty when they are, you know, basically murdered by drone strikes. Sorry. Like, I again, this is one of those things that rings hollow. And, and the sort of invocation of, like, well, you know, it made me reflect a lot more on 9-11, uh, knowing that, you know, we, we finally killed uh, al-Zawahiri. It's like... At what expense? At what cost? Did you like totally leaving aside whether or not like the U.S. has like whether or not uh, uh, that sort of like vengeance warfare is is worthwhile and that, you know, whether or not the U.S. reserves the right to kill uh, to assassinate people on foreign soil just willy nilly. what what was the what was the human cost in the lead up to that? How many people had to die in order for the infrastructure to be built up for you know that kind of precision strike to happen? I'm sorry, I just don't I don't buy it. Right, and I and I think you know this discussion um, is premised on the idea that this is a success. This is one of the best things that the CIA can claim as a success as this is what we work for every day um sending our hard man into hard places um (laughs) it's it's offensive because when you think about the fact that the cia um under the obama administration in 2011 took out bin laden along with several innocent people they caught bin laden like nude uh in a bedroom and then dumped his body in the sea um, in an incredibly, I mean, I would call it a barbaric attack. Uh, Definitely. And what did that do policy wise? Like what, what was the consequence of that? So here we are over 10 years later, taking out bin Laden's number two. I mean, I think like, both of these examples, what fascinate me about them, and this may tie into, you know, our analysis of what this podcast is doing and who the intended audience of it is, would be that both of these examples are virtue signaling. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're the CIA saying, 
look, we called out a bad guy or we got a bad guy. And that is a beautiful moral victory. Um, When it's like, what about all the moral harm that you've done um, over, over the same period? I mean, as you were saying, Alex, like it certainly outweighs it. um, But it's also just like, how, how are you selling this to people (laughs) as a great victory um, when, this guy, you know, the CIA admits now that Al Qaeda and even ISIS, you know, are not grave threats to Americans at this point. Um, right. And so, why are we claiming this? This is the best success you can come up with. Um, is is, is the number two guy to uh, the mastermind of an attack from over twenty years ago? Oh my god. I think we're I think we're going to love this next clip where uh Burns makes his case for why the CIA is apolitical. So let's listen to this. Ah. Great. I guess I would just add one other word to to ingenuity and dedication and that's apolitical. Because <laughs> our job is not to bend intelligence to suit political or policy preferences or agendas. No. It's to deliver <laughs> the best intelligence that we can gather, the best analysis that we can put together with honesty and integrity. Um, our job is to tell policymakers what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Um, and I've seen the importance of that over you know many decades of public service, first as a career diplomat, now as director of CIA, working for six presidents and administrations of both parties. And I've seen that we only get ourselves in trouble as a nation and we make bad policy choices when we forget those very basic truths. Thank you for, for highlighting that word as well. Appreciate it. <laughs> I had to, I had, that, I had to that, keep that last part in. No, no that was you, fantastic. Cause, thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you for highlighting that last virtue. Like that was the most virtue signally part of that entire clip, right? There, yep. every anything that we've heard is, you know, thank, thank you, thank you for, thank you for really acknowledging the importance of being apolitical. That's so, that's so crucial. Nobody thinks about that anymore. It's like, good lord. So, so <laughs> I, I do want to. I, I do think this is really important to talk about because. Um, what I've noticed when the U.S. government, especially intelligence agencies, when they use a word like apolitical, and I think um, actually you even hear this a little bit in higher ed, too, when when we're talking about like free speech in higher ed and 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 avoiding um, avoiding making your class too political because you might you might get in trouble. Right. Um, right. Often what we mean is partisan so 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 political does not mean like any political values it means like explicitly going in for the republicans over the democrats or the democrats over the republicans um and i just think that that's a very uh blinkered and limited understanding of political Oh, it's incredibly narrow. Again, when you take into account that, like, everything that the CIA does is political, right? It's like in some way, shape, or form. Like, they. I mean, they're a public less, agency, right? Yeah. They work for the U.S. government. They admitted it right from the very top. Like, yes. we are t- there to, like, okay, even if you take them at their very, their, their own language, we are there to protect the safety of the American people. That's a political goal. That is political. Sorry. Like, it really, it truly is, especially when you talk about 
the actual like what that means in terms of repressing uh, other governments around the world like that is uh, and and social movements in other places like that is political and even the, it's always going to be political. even the choice to define an American people that you are defending is a political choice because why not also defend, for example, like the Mexican people, the Canadian people, like people even just in our immediate uh, geopolitical uh, surrounds. Right. But, but, but at a broader level, of course, because all of the, you know, these problems that the CIA claims exist objectively out there in the world as natural facts um, all of those problems are global problems. So why wouldn't you um, say that you're defending all people, right? Uh, right. Because you're making a political rhetorical choice. Yeah, you are you are a nationalist organization. <laughs> like whether, yeah, I mean, that's that's implied right in the very language that they're using. Right. And, and just the one other thing that I thought about when I heard this clip for the first time was that it makes me think a lot about the police and how, you mm. know, increasingly I, I almost think it's well, it, it, it has ba- really bad social effects. Um, but I almost think it's clarifying that a lot of local police departments are getting increasingly politicized like FOP members are openly supporting Trump and supporting these like really extreme political candidates. Um, They almost always oppose a Democratic mayor uh, in, in cities. They want like these fringe Republican mayors to somehow get elected um, to unleash them more on the populace. I think what's good about that is that uh, it, it helps expose that the police are, are political entities. I think the police right. portray themselves as just enforcing law and order um, uh, with no political bias of any sort, no political interest. But in fact, they are a political interest group within whatever jurisdiction they're operating in. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I think we have to see the CIA the same way. I mean, this is an institution that gets a certain amount of the public budget every year. So they have political incentives, if nothing else, just to keep themselves alive and keep their budgets growing. Um, Yes. And so given those incentives, they make political decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's just bizarre to imagine that they're separate from political processes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This is not a perfectly rational organization that is able to mete out justice in the way that, you know, they, yeah, yeah, without any, any political bias, even defined in like partisan or nonpartisan terms, right? Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. So uh, in the next clip I have here, uh, our co-host Walter just very quickly summarizes the uh, CIA eras of the last 75 years. And I think this is a really interesting narrative. So let's just hear what Walter has to say about that. And we want to take uh, a moment to highlight the importance of this year for the agency. As many listeners will know, this is the CIA's 75th anniversary. And CIA has gone through a lot of change over its history, from the Cold War to the post 9-11 era to this era of great power competition. So what do you think about that? 
great power competition. So, I mean, yeah, obviously just like, okay, let's make a list of euphemisms here for, um, to kind of, uh, quickly summarize the different eras that the CIA has gone through all the way from, uh, again, like I alluded to before in the, uh, mm, let's think about, uh, what happened 75 years ago that, uh, that would have, uh, caused the, uh, creation of a covert intelligence operation. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, the end of world war two, where all of a sudden we're, uh, the U S is poised, uh, against the Soviet union and, uh, Oh yeah, so we're so what are we doing in that era? Well, we have Operation Paperclip, and you know all these other uh, intelligence operations that are bringing over, uh, you know, Werner von Braun, uh, Friedrich Galen, uh, you know, Klaus Barbie, like all these ba- like truly Nazi war criminals who were, uh, you know, either yeah, who were basically exonerated and brought into U.S. intelligence circles, setting up their own intelligence organizations to uh, feed this sort of like counterintelligence to the U.S. about the Soviet Union and help come up with tactics for waging, you know, basically what what almost evolved into a hot war thanks to the sort of bad intel that uh, that uh, particularly uh, Friedrich Galen was giving to the CIA and the U.S. more broadly, like that almost led to a actual like sort of nuclear annihilation. And then, you know, yeah, moving up to today, where just as recently as, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, now we are suppressing left-wing movements in Italy that led to the recent uh, election of a far-right, basically, you know, Mussolini-adjacent, let's say, uh, leader in, uh, in, uh, as the Italian prime minister. So we've come a long way, baby. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I think it's very important to remind people of that i mean i think people have a vague idea of the history but you know during the cold war it was not just the u.s and the soviet union like in this kind of uh bipolar struggle um it was the cia's mission to oppose all left-wing movements all over the world on the assumption that they would become uh new fronts for the soviets and of course the Soviets did maintain foreign policy relationships with many of those movements. But um, like, you know, as we know too well uh, in the last few elections, foreign interference is very common in, yes. in, in all in all democratic elections. Um, and that doesn't thereby give you the right to like join in the fray um, right. and, and back your favorite favorite party to the point of assassinating members of parties that you you don't agree with um and so yeah. uh so yeah the the cold war era into the post 9-11 era i like that they just own up to yeah. that yeah we totally changed <laughs> our uh stance on you know what the gravest threats to americans were like on a dime mm-hmm. on a single day yep. um yep. and and started as you were alluding to earlier assassinating wedding parties and funeral mm-hmm. parties around the middle east um into today the great power competition uh where you know as you'll see in what burns says in the next clip this is really about china um yes it's 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 not as if there are all these other great powers that are threatening the united states it's one in particular and it's china baby and um they're a big threat apparently uh which which i just think is 
mind-boggling when you consider the size of our military, the number of nukes we have, and the fact that we have China entirely encircled with military bases. Um, yes. But yeah, so let's let's take a listen to what Burns says about the great the great power competition, Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, so the 75th, I think, is an opportunity to reflect on what we got right and what we got wrong over those years. What uh, did we get wrong? The Cold War and then the <laughs> War Not much. Decades, um, <laughs> since 9-11. We've and had some also, good times. You know, We've time had some bad times. But mainly it's been a big old party. <laughs> to navigate successfully, you know, what is an incredibly complicated international terrain, you know, featuring, as you mentioned, major power competition with rising powers like China. And we've rising powers like China. What are the other powers? <laughs> I was just about to say, what else is a rising? I mean, I guess maybe India in like some very sort but of India like is a U.S. And, ally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like we're not there's there's not a great power competition. Like, I no. mean, yeah, Iran. Like, who are we talking about here? No, no, it's oh, that is that man. is very strategic language to take a sample of one and pretend that it's much bigger than that created a, a new center at cia focused on china we're trying to put more resources recruit more mandarin speakers um, to help address that central geopolitical challenge but it also means we have to deal with uh, declining powers not just rising ones like russia and putin demonstrates every day that declining powers can be at least as disruptive as rising ones it means dealing effectively with the revolution in technology which is transforming the way in which we operate overseas um, and which makes it all the more important for us to organize ourselves in a way um, both at headquarters and in the field and to build stronger partnerships with the private sector as well so we can better understand trends in technology and help the American people um, compete better um, you know, with adversaries and rivals around the world too. Um, and so I think, you know, all of those things are what marks this landscape. And of course, you know, as the Zawahiri strike reminds us, we still have the continuing challenge of terrorism. It may take different forms today than it did over most of the last 20 years, but it's still a significant challenge. We still have significant capabilities at this agency, working with partners across the U.S. government, and that's going to be another of our most important priorities. It's a balancing act is Absolutely. what it's going to continue to be. Ugh. Lot to do, lot to do. Oh my God, the task ahead of us to to manage the 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 competition that that all Americans face against our like uh, yeah against my rival that I play online video games against in in China or in Russia, you know South yeah. Korea or whatever. Yeah, in Russia, like like what is he talking about? <laughs> like it's we're partner. This is just like the that oblique language and references to like, oh, we're developing more partnerships with the private sector in order to help um, like regular Americans compete against their rivals overseas. And it's like, what are you? What is this supposed to be like some, you know, you're competing in a global job market against people from China and Russia and wherever else or like. I just don't. Ugh. I mean, so we have the reemergence of the competition metaphor. Mm -hmm. We also have this weird invocation of of uh, the the verb organize yes. ourselves, I'm glad you which that. I yeah, that is like I don't know if that's supposed to be an appropriation of the sort of like progressive uh, idiom of organizing, right? Like organizing 
people in mass to challenge power, right? Like that's the traditional definition of it is you, you get organized in a group of people. It's harder to, you know, arrest a hundred people than it is to arrest a single person demonstrating against, you know, uh, dissenting against a government. Um, here he seems to be using it to say like, we, the CIA are organizing ourselves in this mass, intelligent social movement against uh against rising powers as well as as well as uh uh what did he say declining powers uh was what russia is yeah declining powers yeah. um right and and i and i thought that that was particularly ironic that he was talking about he said um as we've seen with russia declining <laughs> powers can be very disruptive to the world yeah like can you think of any other declining powers that have been very disruptive <laughs> to the world on, on their slash our way out? Um, I don't know. It feels like yeah, projection, just a, man. Just, just a teeny tiny bit of projection going on here. I no, think. but I, I'm so glad that you caught the, the use of the word organize because let's take what we've heard so far. Um, we've heard a ton of virtue signaling uh, yes. presenting the CIA a Basically, as, you know, the world's most powerful uh, cancellation machine. We canceled Putin. <laughs> we canceled Zawahiri. Um, and and uh, they're talking about organizing. They're presenting it in a genre of an NPR-style podcast. I feel like this thing is targeting oh, liberal academics. And oh I think, my God! I think that's why it's so important that we are doing this podcast oh. because we need to educate our fellow liberal academics that the CIA is not on your side. The CIA is Ooh. not your friend. Their Ooh. analysis of issues like race and gender and uh, uh, representation is not intersectional. The biggest reason you can tell that's the case is that it's not internationalist. It is yes. focused on a nationalist perspective that we should care about American lives at the expense of all others. Yes. Um, and, you know, certainly they're not thinking about class and disability and all, all kinds of other issues that, you know, that, that should affect our analyses of like typical and I, and I think worthy liberal academic concerns um yeah and so this does feel to me like a very cynical pitch to liberal academics to be like look the job market in academia is really hard you know what's a much less hard job market coming to work for the cia <laughs> <laughs> that's where all the humanities phds are going folks if the job market doesn't improve we're <laughs> i think that's their idea i think i think yeah it is. The, the only other thing i wanted to mention here really quickly sure. is that i i wonder if they are also kind of leaning into this you know a a truly partisan realignment where it feels like you have a lot more sort of like right-wing ideologues like Marjorie Taylor Greene or mm -hmm. Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, uh, and, you know, Donald Trump, of course, now too is getting investigated by the FBI and the DOJ. Um, 
And, you know, it, the, the right wing is turning against the three-letter agencies and the intelligence community more right. broad, the, 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 the deep state, as, as they have unfortunately appropriated the term. And what I, what I do worry about, especially with, you know, the FBI being involved in the potential, I guess, prosecution or at least investigation of Donald Trump, um, that, that they are trying to lean into this, this supposed partisan realignment of, like, FBI, CIA, woke and good, uh, you know, especially because can't you see that that crazy, you know, crazy uh, uh, lady with the AR-15 over there is yelling about uh, the CIA brainwashing our children and about right? abolishing like, the FBI. Yeah, abolishing the FBI. You don't want to align yourself with that person, right? It just I yeah, I don't know if that's a part of it, but I, I'm sensing that as part of the cultural milieu that I think that's a playing role here, too. And and uh and it, yeah, it makes you wonder how long will they be able to say that they are apolitical? Um, yeah. Because it certainly feels like they're they're aligning more with one party rather than the other, and right. you know, that's not to say anything about the value of either party. Um, <laughs> I certainly agree with the CIA that the Republicans are, you know, off the deep end. But uh, anyways, <laughs> I just have I think two more short clips, um, sure. and then we can wrap up. All right, so now we're going to hear um, D, first D is going to talk about uh, the, the upcoming episodes. They're going to deal more with the CIA's history. And you, you kind of strike at the, the heart of needing to learn from our history to kind of grow and progress to understand the, the current landscape and how to, to move forward with our mission on that end. And for those of you, when we were mentioning that it is our 75th anniversary, um, we just wanted to mention to our listeners that we're going to be sitting down in a future episode to kind of discuss a little bit more about our backstory as an agency, some of the events that we've held to celebrate and to kind of highlight our agency's work over the 75 years. So stay tuned for that. Oh, That's indeed. great. I'll look forward to that Absolutely. as well. <laughs> thanks thanks d we're gonna have we're gonna have some great events some great celebrations of all the hard work that we've done yeah we're Just... gonna bring in a lot of experts to talk about our history uh jeremy scahill <laughs> noam chomsky uh howard yeah, zinn exactly howard zinn. <laughs> we're gonna bring him back from the grave we, yeah. we have a hologram howard zinn <laughs> Ho hollows in there you go uh, there you gonna... go yeah God. it's gonna be oh, i mean they do have God. the tech to do that um, but, I bet. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, I, it's so funny to hear them talking about their history as if it's something that we're all just so excited to talk about. Oh, absolutely. We, we can't wait for for the future history of the CIA as told by the CIA. So then uh, Walter and Dee are, are, are intrepid hosts. They uh, again take a step back and summarize what they see as the purpose of the podcast. So let's let's see if it backs up my theory from earlier. For those of you that have stuck around. We wanted to take just a few more minutes to share our thoughts on what it is that we're really trying to achieve here with this podcast. Yeah, and provide you with some insight on what you can expect to hear. And the goal is really to have on guests that can both provide insights into important events that the agency took part in or led, and to also share some really cool stories about the officers who made them possible. We'll also bring you stories from our museum and our historians. And we're going to talk with some agency leaders who can share what it means to be a part of CIA's culture and perhaps share some stories about the incredible work we do here on a daily basis. At the end of the day, we really want this podcast to serve three main functions. First, we want to give you a unique look behind the curtain. We also want to give you the chance to hear directly from the people that do this work every day. And finally, 
We want to educate the world on the history of the agency and its enduring mission. Sounds easy enough, right, Dee? Sure. Wow. It only came in at the very end there where I started hearing like, okay, yeah, this is like Sarah Koenig and Roman Mars talking directly to me about about how great the CIA is, about celebrating our, our, our heritage, about, you know, just charting a course for the for a beautiful future out of uh, out of the remnants of the past. Right. And I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I'm I'm uh, having a little bit of selection bias here, but. I'm just hearing little breadcrumbs that back up my theory. The use of the phrase "this work," the people who do this oh, yeah. work, yeah, this uh, work. Yes. The use of educate. It's not our job to educate you, but still, we're going <laughs> to educate you. Uh, I think it's purposeful, oh. man. I know. I do, I definitely do too. The, the I I think you're absolutely right in pointing out that like the linguistic idiom that they are, or the rhetorical idiom we might say that they are borrowing from most heavily is that of like like liberal academia and you know podcasts that are not not directly, not exclusively but certainly not exclusively listened to but certainly like predominated by liberals right like this is not. I, I'm I, like imagine a counterexample, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, where they do a CIA podcast in the style of the Joe Rogan experience, <laughs> right? Like imagine, imagine if this was a J a JRE CIA podcast, right? Like like this is the you know you just hear somebody like token on a fat blunt yeah, in the background. And rip, and then- <laughs> So you ever, you ever, so this like, so this MK ultra stuff, I know that they, they released the documents on this, but like, what, what did it really mean? Like, what was it really all about? (laughs) So, so you're saying that the goal was to not to intervene in democracy, uh, but to actually protect Americans. God dang it. I mean, if, to be quite honest, like, who knows? Maybe maybe Mr. Burns is going to go on the Joe Rogan experience to plug uh, the CIA <laughs> podcast. Well, he doesn't need to because that's another CIA show. I was, Rogan okay, yeah, there you go. Um, there we go. We've come full circle on that. Yes. Very nice. <laughs> uh, so just to take us out, uh, I think the, the way that they close the podcast is, uh, I think you're going to have some thoughts on it. So let's just hear this little genre touch they put in at the very end all right thank you listeners for joining us today we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode and from all of us here at cia we'll be seeing you (laughs) (laughs) hey uh don't forget to hit stop on the recording we'll do can you get the lights uh got it let's go So it's like Again. a it's like a tongue in cheek kind of like we're not spying on you but what if we were? We'll be seeing you. Yeah. No, again, these there are little things that are put in there to make the, you know, again, the the proverbial tinfoil hat people just make their heads explode. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's designed it's yeah, they're they're dunking on maga people. They're they're yep. um which again, that backs up my theory, theory. as well. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, wow. What can we say here at the end? I guess my my final statement is, you know, we need an analysis of social justice and rhetoric and communication and writing that, uh, you know, that clarifies that, you know, you can't you can't really 
be fully bought in on these ideas of social justice and, you know, go to work for an agency that that does so much harm to marginalized people around the world. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we, you pointed this out earlier, and I thought it was really astute that a good way to spot a phony <laughs> in this case, uh, it you know, th- in this case, it should be pretty obvious. It's the freaking CIA trying to convince you that they're woke and good. Um, but I think a good way to spot a phony is uh, is to ask is their analysis intersectional mm-hmm. uh, and is it internationalist, right? Like, is are they focused on good outcomes for everybody, the world out, the world throughout, or are they only focused on outcomes for specifically a category of people constituted by a nation state, like American people, right? That is going to be the ultimate tell. If they are uh, hoisting a nationalist banner and they're telling you that in their own terms, uh, you can pretty safely say, this is, uh, you know, this ain't it, chief. This is not what you want. This is not uh, the the woke analysis that you were really looking for. Yeah, so just, you know, yes, the academic job market is hard, uh, but... <laughs> But please, you know, English PhDs, please. don't go work for the CIA, I promise you. <laughs> Adjuncting is more... I'm Sorry, well, I shouldn't... Well, just, yeah. just find just a... Just find a job. Yeah, just or find, or yeah. just find an ineffectual nonprofit to work for. Yes. I, you know, there's you got a lot of <laughs> options. Um, but, uh, no, like even that would uh, do much less harm. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, just don't work for the CIA. But I'm glad, we, I'm glad we took a look at this because, uh, you know... We, we have to stay on top of the competition, right, Alex? That's right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. We don't want them, you know, butting, but, you know, butting our number one spot atop the CIA network's uh, uh, charts. So we need to, you know, uh, oh, I mean, sorry, I wasn't supposed to say that. Uh, we we don't want, you know, yeah, we want, uh, we, you know, rhetorical analysis, I would say, uh, still always wins the day. Here, yes. Right. Like we. We, we don't claim to be apolitical or nonpartisan. I nah. don't think that you really can be. Um, but at least we, you know, are addressing our priors and we make our assumptions clear, which is the th- kind of thing that you, it sounds like, are not going to get from the CIA podcast. So listen to more Reverb. Absolutely. We got 72 other episodes you can enjoy. And uh, I guess just as we sign off here, I would say uh, I'm D. <laughs> and I'm I, I can't remember what the Walter. other guy's name it's is. Walter. I'm Wal- I'm Walter. And uh we'll be seeing you. Let's go. <laughs> Pipe in the music. Yeah, sure, and I'll turn the lights out too, and I'll also turn off all of these recording devices. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, great. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye everybody. Watch me actually say all the stuff that they were saying at the very end. <laughs> Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak, Ben Williams, and Mike Laudenbach. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.